Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Matthew chapter 6 in your Bibles, if you have them. Matthew chapter 6. If you need a Bible to follow along with this morning, our ushers are ready to give you one if you'll just lift your hand. Um, they'll be able to help you, God willing. Looking forward to the baptisms following the end of our sermon this morning. Uh, every time we have a baptism, we typically begin a sermon that we finish the next week. That's probably not going to be um, any new news to you if you're here this morning. But we'll begin in Matthew 6 and verse 25 uh, this morning, and then uh, wrap that up in verse 34 uh, next week uh, together. I want to try to do something. If I can't do it, I'm going to immediately stop trying to do it. I've always wondered if I could get a selfie with the whole congregation. So, you know what? I think I can, but I'm going to have to do it in two sections. Is that all right? If you don't want to be part of the picture, just duck. All right? Because what I like to do on Sunday mornings is pray section by section for faces that I, mem that I, that I try to memorize. All right? And hopefully with my new iPhone, when I zoom it, you won't be blurry. All right? And then over here. All right. You know what? I wasn't in any of those. My forehead was, but I don't need to, <laughs> I don't need to pray for my forehead. So, thank you. I've always wanted to do that. I've thought about doing it from the back of the auditorium, but then I, I don't memorize the back of your heads, so that's kind of hard. And um, So anyways, hope you're off to a new good year. I don't know what's wrong with this thing this morning, but my right ear is caving in because this thing's having issues. But uh, we'll get going. Matthew 6. There are five discourses and five narratives. Five verbal discourses and five narratives. In the Gospel of Matthew, all presenting Christ as king in various ways to the Jewish people. In the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5 through 7 of the book of Matthew, is Christ's first public discourse as he began to establish his own authority among his own people. The Sermon on the Mount, though, is not new information to his people. It's been described in a number of different ways, but it certainly wasn't uniquely brand new information to them. However, um, there's one author that I, that I think describes the purpose for the Sermon on the Mount very clearly and succinctly. He says, it is the wisdom of God inviting all of us through faith to orient our values vision, and habits from the ways of external righteousness to wholeheartedness towards God. He goes on to say that it's Jesus' method of teaching, it's seen first here in his first public discourse, using thematic structures, images, and poetic language to allow his listeners more simple ways to remember meditate upon and memorize Christ's heart particularly and how to live every day. Chapter 6, which is kind of sandwiched in between 5 and 7, particularly the last part of chapter 6, addresses two kinds of people. Two kinds of people. 
I would say here, according to our context, two kinds of seekers. Two kinds of seekers. Now, a lot of you are going to automatically think that we're going to be talking about some type of church movement, maybe a seeker-sensitive movement, and that kind of, well, that's not what we're going to discuss. Jesus tells us here that there's two kinds of seekers in the world. If you look at verse 32 with me of chapter 6, he'll define the first one. For the Gentiles, those are people, and for those of you that aren't familiar with your Bibles or maybe you're newly saved, whenever, not whenever, sometimes, according to the context, when this word Gentile is used, it's generally in reference to people that just don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ yet. Right? People that walk their life according to their own set of standards and values those are the Gentiles. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. And we're going to define what all these things are in a little bit. They're, they're, they're generally just food, clothing, and shelter. What can I do to make sure that I live my life, uh, as James says, also to a Jewish audience, to go buy, sell, and get gain? What can I do to exist in this culture to live my dream. The Gentiles, those who don't know Jesus, eagerly seek. That's a strong verb, basically stating that this desire consumes them. This is why they get up every morning. This is why they want a tomorrow, right? They eagerly seek these things. The second kind of seeker here is in verse 33. Here he's speaking to those people of faith. And he's saying, this is what you're to do. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you. Similar terminology identical consumption, if you will. The Gentiles are consumed of themselves to seek these things. The believer would be consumed of someone else to seek a different value system, a different set of virtues. So one is governed of themselves and another seeker is governed by somebody else to seek a different set of values. As a matter of fact, when it says here of the Gentiles that they eagerly seek it, the grammar here is, is um, clearly states a self-directed lifestyle. The fact that the believer is told in verse 33 a command... This is what they're to do tells us that this command is coming from a different source. It's not a present active indicative if you know the Greek language or it is a, it's in a present active imperative. The lifestyle of the Gentile is just doing what they do, governed by themselves. The lifestyle of a believer is telling us you're under different ownership. You're under a different governorship 
And this is what believers do. You seek, and the word first here is the Greek word protos, where we get our English word priority. This is your first obligation. You seek spiritual virtues. When it says here the kingdom of God and his righteousness, I know there's all kinds of definitions of the kingdom of God, but you have to understand in relationship to knowing the Bible, you have to take that term when it's used in relationship to its context. For those of you who are newer believers, generally what Jesus is saying here is the life of the believer is to be governed by him as we're owned by him in new ownership and you are to seek heavenly values. The values of the king, of his people, his righteousness. Let it consume you as your first priority. And then you really don't ever have to be concerned about the things that the Gentiles eagerly seek after. So let's continue on here. So for the Gentile, it's their personal expression of their own individuality as the way, as to how they live. And and actually, that's what our culture teaches us, right? You be you. You go find out who you are. You do you. Get all you can get. Have all you can have. Enjoy all you can do. You be you. Live your dream. That's what Gentiles do. They do themselves. There's a lot of good things that they do as they do themselves because they're image bearers, right? There's some quality things that they can do as they bear God's image, but it's self-defined and primarily self-governed. But for the believer, as we live in this world, we have this deep longing to utilize what our Creator has given us, and because we have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we get to understand the purpose for our existence. And whereas the Gentile, those that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, will invest in possibly many good things that have temporary value when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and we're compelled to be consumed to do that, we begin to realize in our lives in the here and now eternal value and the way we live, and the fruit of why we live. We live in a consumer world, we know that. Studies show us recently that retail shopping at Christmas was up 3.5% over last year's 3.5% increase. So in the last two years, we've had a, a 7% increase in Christmas purchasing in our culture. Apparently, the economy is good. Whatever that means, people are spending more, right? It's not difficult in our society to live like a Gentile. We eagerly seek food, clothing, and shelter, and those things that can, can advance us, to be sure. But the believer seeks to be governed One computer ago, I had a hard drive that was affected by a virus. And so the people in the office couldn't fix it. So they took that hard drive out and put it in another one. And my computer was being governed by a different source. That's what it's like for a believer. 
When you surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and turn your life over to him, he begins to call the shots, if you will. And whatever he compels us to do by his grace is always for eternal value, not temporary gain. So what does seeker number one desire? Verse 31, look there if you will. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, or what will we wear? Food and clothing, and I'll add here shelter because there's other parts of scripture that tell us that we're to be content with just those three. We don't live for those three, we're to be content with those three as gifts from God, but this is what consumes seeker number one. And highlighting again, seeker number two, instead of merely consuming or defining our self-existence, we begin to be consumed by a directive that's divine, saturated by that directive and allowed by allowing it to be first place in our lives, and that's the, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The facet, one of the fascinating realities to me of both these seekers is that both have to have what Jesus outlines here as food and clothing and shelter. Right? We have to have those things. We would call those things needs. But again, one is living for those things merely. And the other has a higher purpose for living. Seeker one lives for that which can be seen, and seeker two lives for that which may not necessarily be able to be seen. The earthly-minded purpose person lives for what they can manufacture. They live for what causes them comfort, maybe, or protection. The spiritual person is governed by another who by grace creates spiritual happiness in their soul's through Christ and the gospel first then governs their priorities as they allow the Lord to provide their daily and material needs personal needs so at this juncture maybe it's appropriate to, to ask a question who or what is defining the reason why you live My brother recently took a flight from Dulles, Washington Dulles Airport to Raleigh-Durham Airport. And uh, he said it was the, the worst flight of his existence. My brother flies a lot. And um, I said, well, did you at least get your phone out to get a video of the turbulence? I'd like to see this. He goes, my hands never left my seat. And I told him, I said, that's kind of dumb. You got a seat belt. Right? Why weren't you thinking to get out your phone? Because if the plane goes down, your seat's going down with it anyway. Why didn't you get always just joking around with him? He goes, I don't know why. He said, my, I had a white knuckle the whole way. It was a 55-minute flight. And from the moment we took off, he said, I've never had a flight that didn't have at least a minute or two of some peace. He said, but this one was the worst I'd ever been on. And he said, people all over the plane were utilizing the bags that are... <laughs> gifted to them and and 
Uh, he said, you know, it gets nervous when the flight attendants look nervous. And uh, that's where my eyes always go first. If the flight attendants look calm, we're good. Doesn't matter what I'm feeling. When they start to get nervous, that's when I eh, pray a little bit more. <laughs> right? So they, he said, the flight attendants were looking nervous. Um, and he said, this plane was actually not just dipping hundreds of feet at a time. It was sidewaysing. And it was going up and down, sidewaysing. And it was, he said it was, he said it's indescribable. And so when the plane landed, uh, he said everyone was so shook up, he said it took them 15 minutes before they would even open the door to let people off, to get everyone calm. He said, including the pilot. <laughs> he said, on the way out the plane, he said, I talked to the pilot. I said, so, at a scale of one to 10, he was in his 50s. Um, how bad was this flight? And he goes, I've had two tens in my life, and this was one of them. You know, one being least, ten being greatest. He said, so what do you do at that point? He goes, well, I'm not allowed to fly the plane. He said, because when the turbulence is that bad, engineers don't trust humans to fly the plane because we overcorrect. And he said, we'd probably crash it. He said, so a computer flew us for 55 minutes. He goes, yes, sir. <laughs> They were safe, they were on the ground. I don't know if I would want to know that before I got up there. Many of you that know aviation probably already knew that. And so this is not new news to you. Right? Uh, but it was clear that something other human was calling the shots during that flight to provide safety. It's a silly illustration. Just to show, once again, that life is about who's in control. And for the Christian, it's either God or us. I mean, really. It's either God or us. If we even begin to take the controls in any particular moment, that's when you stop trusting. Right? And that's why Jesus is saying here in very simple terms, look, there's no reason for concern. If you seek me and my divine purposes and my righteousness first. Let me saturate you with my personal governance. I've got this. And you need to consume your life with pursuing that reality. Let's go back and examine a little bit more about what this means in the previous parts of chapter 6. Verses 16 to 24, again, in the same sermon spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ, he analyzes some other aspects of our, of our existence that are governed by him or should be governed by him. How about the way we personally worship in verses 16 and 17? When he says here, seek first my spiritual virtues of, as my people and my righteousness, that includes personal worship. He says here, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret and by your Father who sees what is done in secret and he will reward you. 
What does it mean to seek first spiritual values and let them be consumed by you? Jesus says here in his own public sermon to those who would have believing ears, he would say, you need to personally be with me regularly. This is personal worship. I don't believe this was public worship. The genuine believer will crave, will be consumed by, will eagerly seek to be alone with God daily. And you'll make it a priority, right? Seek ye first. Seek ye first. Are you? Say, I know Jesus. Maybe it's time for a reorientation. Are you being governed by? Eagerly seeking him personally. Every day. Every day. Do you read your Bible? Do you pray? Can I say, can I put it this way? Do you self-minister? Are you always waiting to be ministered to by somebody else? before you minister to yourself. Self-ministry is a priority of God, according to Jesus here. Do this in secret. Enjoy God. Enjoy your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Look at verses 19 to 21. What about our tomorrows? Why do you get up? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break through and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I think this is in a pre-relationship to what we've begun to study in verses 25 to 34 that we'll wrap up next week. Are you living for the temporal or are you living for the unseen? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, there is an eternal weight of glory. (laughs) There's a divine purpose as to why he lives his life. And it's a gospel purpose for sure. But Jesus is saying here that you're laying up treasure in food, clothing, and shelter, and you're eagerly seeking what Gentiles do, or you're enjoying those needs provided by God simply and naturally so that you can be compelled to live for a higher purpose. For where your treasure is, there's your heart also. So what spiritual virtues consume you? What spiritual cravings do you have in addition to what we've already looked at here as far as a personal walk with God? What are the cravings of a believer that are supernaturally natural that we're commanded to pursue? Personal worship? I would encourage you to listen to five more times Pastor Mike's message on Psalm 15 from a month ago. Public worship. Is it a mandate? Seek ye first God's values? Well, 
Scripture tells us it is in Hebrews 10 that he touched on at the end of his sermon. What about the preparation all week long to being together with the family of God? What's your why about your why about your why? What consumes you? The family of God is a protoss, it's a priority, and the reason why the family of God exists and what the family of God does, or it's an attachment to your agenda. If it's an attachment to your agenda, you're living like a Gentile would live. Because you're living throughout the week attached to providing your own dream and you doing you in food, clothing, and shelter, but you, no, you seek first something different. This is God's plan. When he says here, there's where your treasure is, there's your heart also, I just basically think he's saying, where your treasure is, there's your heart also. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, where your treasure is, there's your heart also. Well, what's your treasure? What's the reason you have a bank account, and what's the reason why you have the things that God's provided you? I mean, really. Stuff. Needs and things extra. Why do we have it all? Well, it's to pursue seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's to underpin personal worship. It's to underpin the drive towards public worship. And it's to underpin uh, the purpose as to why this body exists in this area and why it exists in our globe. And we outline that truly through our Christmas time, don't we? One practical application to that with the Christmas offering. But we also outline that in the way we do our whole budget for the church. We do it according to our mission statement, that the glory of God by evangelizing the lost and, and equipping the saints with the goal of Christ's likeness. Those are th- seeking first the kingdom of God, his priorities. That's the why of our why of our why. You say, I love the church of Jesus Christ. And yet, some still live their lives unconsumed by her purpose. unconsumed. Remember the illustration of the plane? (laughs) Something's got exclusive ownership of the purpose for your existence, or you've got it. It's amazing to me how some, not all, I think generally our church is tremendously healthy in this regard, but it is amazing to me how some say, I love Jesus, I love his church, and yet they're unconsumed by her or her motivations or her, her purposes unconsumed, not generally involved, unconsumed. You cannot say, I love the church, excuse me, you cannot say, I love Jesus Christ without loving his bride. You can't. And remember, you don't get to call the shots on how you love his bride. The Bible calls the shots on how you love his bride. Are you consumed with that priority? Seeking first Jesus and his priorities. I'll get there when I can. I'll be there when I can. I'll let my kids' schedules govern my life, but we'll attach church to it when I can. Let me tell you what. The people who are getting that first are your kids. And will you allow in moderation your kids will excuse in excess? They just will. By the way, they already are. Even at three, four, five, six years old, they already are. 
the tail of the world, the, the tail of the Gentile world's ragging the dog <laughs> already. But for the believer, when you're consumed, right, we live for a different purpose. Again, James chapter four, same kind of audience here. He speaks to Jewish people only in a local church context. He says, be careful that you don't go out and buy and sell and get gain without saying, well, what does the Lord have to say about this? In the same context, it says, when you know to do good and do it not, it's paneros, it's evil for you. And in that context, we hear that verse a lot, it's in the context of getting up, buying, and planning out our schedules in somewhat of a um, practical, atheistic way. We go, 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 we do, 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 and we do a lot of wonderful and good things that God's gifted us to do but the why as to why we do those things is skewed. We do them as Gentile motivation and not as seeker to motivation. What consumes you? And folks, I'm not even talking about a building, and I'm not even really talking about a budget. I'm not even really talking about the size of our congregation. This is anti-American completely. This is Bible. Why are you saved? Why are you here? Why are you involved here? And why are we doing what we're doing? Are we consumed with these spiritual values? And then we happen to have a job. And then we happen to have the things in life God's given us to enjoy, which we'll cover next week. Okay. Verse 24 very clear, no one can serve two masters, Jesus says. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. There it is again, right? Obviously, these are pre verses 25 to 34, but nonetheless, I think within the context here of outlining for us what drives the Gentile or what drives a spiritually prioritized person. Some of you have really good, sincere relationships as unmarried individuals with members of the opposite sex. Great. It's a God's gift to you. But even in that relationship, who's calling the shots? Why are you a couple? Why are you about to do what you're going to do in life? Is it merely about a degree? Is it merely about a job? Is it merely about your first home and your first car together? Is it merely about things that Gentiles seek? Or can you sit down as a couple and say, seek first the kingdom of God and his priorities? And all these things will be added to you. Is it okay, young couples, married and unmarried, to sit down and say, you know what? I'd like to know what my pastor thinks about this big move I'm about to make. Whatever happened to that? Whatever happened to Hebrews 13, 17 anyway? When your own pastor does that with his authority, can't we with ours? What are God's priorities in your life? Why are you doing what you're doing in any part of life? Most here have all their physical needs met plus more. 
So who or what is the driving force behind why you live your life and you do what you do with what you have? Brandwatch.com is a a website I check into because they're relatively most up-to-date with their analysis and their statistics in relationship to the use of social media, right? Brandwatch.com. They posted actually on December 30th of 2019 their studies from that year. And this is their conclusion. So over half the world's population is now at least on one social media platform. Almost half of the world's population is actually using the social media platforms that they have on their devices. And of those active, they invest about 142 minutes a day utilizing at least one or more social media platforms. They go on to say that screen time for the average adolescent can be up to eight to 10 hours a day. Now that can be a computer at school, that can be a TV at home, that could be a phone in their hand. Right? A lot of screen time. Now we, we know the use of a lot of this digital these digital places and platforms and devices can be part of, like I said, education or vocation or job. It can be part of their life outside of their job. I don't know. They're very clear to say um, that youth are moving in a particular direction and moving from one social media platform and to another, to another, another more quickly. And, um, but their basic analysis is, is that the world is being consumed by an ever-changing digital environment and they have a tendency the site goes on to say that they have a tendency to be consumed by what they see and by what they read you know and that's not hard if you have a if you have an iphone you can go right over to i don't know what you guys call it i call it my toolbox and I can pull up here stats of how much time I spend on Twitter, how much time I spend on Facebook, how much time I spend on Instagram, um, how much time I spend on Snapchat. Uh, it tells me how many selfies I've taken. So as of this morning, two more. Um, it tells me, you know, how many photos I've taken, how many videos I've taken. It just outlines everything. You've, you're familiar with that if you know your device. And, and when I look at that, I'm, I'm saying, oh, wow, I, I am seeing what's consuming me. If it's my time, it's me, right? It's, I can see that. It's a good analysis for me. And then I can step back and I can look at a text like this and I can say, okay, what's the big picture as to why I'm doing what I'm doing? Right? Generally, if you're walking with the Lord, you're not going to have any inappropriate searches or spending time where you shouldn't. If you're not walking with the Lord, there's probably a few of those on there. You can confess that, leave that, and start getting back about priorities again. But it's still going to tell you what's governing you. It's a good analysis to do as you find out what kind of seeker you are. Are you a first-level seeker or are you a, a second-level seeker, so to speak? There's an amazing reality to this governing principle for the faithful believer that we'll go into next week in this passage. 
But for the one who is seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, for the one who, according to Colossians 3, is setting their affections on things above, for the, for the one who is practicing 1 Peter 5 and humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God and waiting for his exaltation in their life, and for these people, who, like 1 Peter 4, are entrusting themselves to a faithful creator, what we do know about this text is that anxiety will not govern their life. Anxiety is the consumption of the Gentile. Gentiles are consumed with anxious living. Three times in this text we'll see next week. You'll see it right there in verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your what? Your life. You'll see it again in verse 31. Do not worry then. And then you'll see it again in verse 34. So do not worry about tomorrow. If we're level two seekers, anxiety may be a natural part of our lives, but anxiety will never consume our lives. Like all of us could say we're anxious. I could spout off about 13 things right now I'm humanly anxious about. But what's governing me? What's governing me? We'll find this out in a lot of other practical things as we seek to be second level seekers, so to speak, next week. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to just examine in the first week of a new year, first priorities. Bless us now, Lord, as we head to hear these two brief testimonies from these saints and their desire to obey you in baptism. In Christ's name we pray, amen.